chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 8 today. So how many of you want to be blessed? Amen. Probably most people raise their hand or say yes. There's a few of you thinking, yeah, what does he mean by blessed? Before I answer that question, you guys have learned me. And you're like, well, I know he's going to pull something off of this. So what does he mean by blessed? What I mean by blessed, there's no trick, trick question. There is no hidden agenda on this. What I mean by blessed is just that, the favor of God. I think everybody desires to have God's favor upon us, and that we all desire to be blessed. I think if I were putting it into the negative, that would also help clarify how many of you would like to not be blessed, and hopefully nobody would raise their hand. Everybody desires to be blessed. And the book of Revelation, we have seen, we saw last week, offers a blessing to the one who reads, to the one who hears, and to the one who obeys. I think the one who obeys is kind of the qualifier of that. Because I think there's a lot of people who've read the book of Revelation, and there's probably a lot of people who've heard the book of Revelation read, but have not done what it says. They're not blessed. Alright? So there is an ethical or component to this idea of being blessed. So blessed is the one who Reads that there would be generally a reader who would come since maybe some people didn't read or they only had one copy of this. They didn't have. Gutenberg wasn't alive yet. And so somebody came along and read the book or read the letter and they probably read it in a single at one point in time. So this was that day's sermon. And there were those who hear and heard and then there would be those who obey. And they would be the blessed ones. So that got me to thinking... In what way were these seven churches to be considered blessed? So they hear the word, they obey what is in here, and in what way were they blessed? Remember, they lived during the, during the reign of Domitian. Domitian was, he was a moral catastrophe of a man. Domitian, of course, desired to be worshipped as God. Suetonius, the historian, tells us that he had his way with many of his friends' wives. He took his uncle's wife and then killed his uncles. He took his niece and... uh, when she became pregnant, she died as he ordered her abortion. He was just a horrific man. This man wanted to be worshipped as God. And he demanded the people in the empire say, Caesar is Lord. And believers in those days would say, no, Jesus is Lord. So in what way were these people blessed? Because if you did not say Caesar is Lord, there was the real possibility that you would die for your faith. Perhaps maybe you wouldn't die for your faith, but perhaps property would be taken from you. Or perhaps property not being taken from you, but perhaps you wouldn't be able to get work because you would not say Caesar is Lord. And you would not worship him. So in what way were these believers blessed? Were they blessed in the sense that they no longer were persecuted? 
Were they blessed in the sense that the threat of having their homes taken was removed? Were they blessed in the sense that their lives were not put on the line and that they were not killed for their faith? Were they blessed in the sense that now all of a sudden, um, unable to get work, they were now able to get the work that they needed to provide for their families? Is that the way in which they were blessed? I suppose some of them, I wouldn't be surprised if God worked great miracles and some who were in prison to be, to be killed for their faith were released without explanation. And then all they could say is, well, that's a miracle from God. Or perhaps they were able to get work and feed their families. I'm sure some of those things happened, but for the most part, these people would end up remaining as oppressed and persecuted people. And they lived under a ruler who was just simply cruel. And so, as we come into and continue in our study in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, we have a need for this, for these four verses or five verses that we're going to look at today. It is really the greeting, remember, Revelation is a letter, and like most letters, they have a greeting. When you write a letter, you say, dear so-and-so, how are you doing? I'm fine. I wish I was there. How's your family? All of those things. Just like our letters have little greetings, so did the letters that the apostles wrote. And of course, when you read Paul's epistles, you see greetings from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you, and all of these things. Well, John writes the same type of an introduction. So why do we need this introduction? Does it have bearing on our lives, or is this simply a mere formality that John wrote in order to introduce his letter? I think there, there's a need... And one of the needs is that perse the persecuted feel persecuted and the belittled will continue to feel belittled. That's just the reality. People who are persecuted feel persecuted. That seems right. But we need to know the blessings that we have as followers of God and as the purchased of the Lamb of God. We need to know the blessings that we have. From God our Father and the Lamb who reigns from heaven. Let me read you something that was written. Um, it's the letter to Dionysius. And that, this letter to Dionysius was, was written probably around 100, somewhere between 130 and 200 AD. Um, it's one of the first Christian defenses of the Christian faith. And it was written, we don't know who wrote it, it simply says from Mathetes, but Mathetes means a disciple. So it was written by a disciple um, to Diognetius, probably in the early um, probably in the early second century. And here he is describing Christians living under the oppressive Roman state. He says this they love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in, every, in the, their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, and they bless. 
They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. And so Christians, when punished, daily increase more and more. Here's what I learn about these early believers. These were people who lived in a way that knowing God was greater than all of the accolades and all of the fame that the world could bring them. These were believers who lived in a way that knowing God was better than avoiding tribulation, persecution, and even death. These were people who lived in such a way that 15 minutes of fame did not distract them and glorifying living in complete obedience to their Lord and God. These were people who believed that knowing God and serving God was more joyous and more of a blessing. Even if it meant the loss of family, the loss of property, the loss of life, the loss of reputation. I think we need this passage of Scripture today because it will call us to live like these believers that were that was written by Mathetus to Diognetius. So let me give you a brief preview of where we're going to go today. This is the salutation of the letter and it sets forth the blessings and the response of those who are redeemed by the Lamb. And so today we want to look at the blessing of those who are redeemed by the Lamb and what is the appropriate response of those who are redeemed by the Lamb. If you have been redeemed by the Lamb, lamb, this passage is for you. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, but when we're done, we'll come back and just look at verses 4 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom." priest to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker of the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see uh, the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, and it has been made as it, when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we begin with a salutation. And in this, the author is identified, and the recipients are identified. It is John. I'm not going to go. It's the Apostle John. I'm not going to go into great detail. Uh, pretty much every book of the Bible, somebody has questioned authorship, and we could spend a fair amount of time dealing with authorship. I won't. It is John the Apostle. And it is written to the seven churches in Asia. Seven very specific churches, and they are listed now. We need to understand the significance here because remember I told you last week, I told you that um, my, kind of how I'm going to approach the book, and I'm going to approach the book as symbolic unless it is obvious that it's literal. All right? I think there's an exegetical reason. I just didn't make that up to make it easy for me or to fit my view. There is an exegetical, there is a biblical reason for that, and that of course was found in verse 1. I'm not going to go into that. You can look at last week's notes, or if you want to talk to me privately about that, that's fine. But I think it is clear from the scriptures, not because I made this up, that this book is to be understood symbolically unless it is obvious that it is literal. Now here comes one where I think it's kind of both. Because it is written to seven literal churches. It tells us the names of the churches. But I don't think it's any accident that John picks seven churches. There were other churches in, in Asia Minor, actually Galatia at that time. These were probably the main ones. But seven is significant. And in the book of Revelation, seven is a very significant number. Numbers are significant in the book of Revelation. And seven, in particular, is very significant. Seven has this idea of completeness or fulfillment. Probably, a good, probably the best biblical cross-reference for us is Genesis 1. How many days until the world was complete? Seven. All right. You could say six, but on the seventh day God rested. And it was done then. Alright, and so we have the very beginning, the very beginning. Seven has this idea of being complete and done, and it is very good. And so, we have this idea of there are seven uh, churches in Asia Minor, and I think it is written them literally, but by writing to the seven churches, John is writing to all churches. Actually, if we look at the, there's a, an ancient document called Miratorian Canon, 
which is the first compilation of books that should be included in the canon, and the author of the Muratorian canon um, also has this. So this is like the mid-2nd century, also holds to this view, so this is a very early view, that John, in writing to the seven churches, writes to all churches. And so this, this greeting, this letter, is a letter that is meaningful and to be a blessing not only to the seven churches that are listed, but to all churches who have ever existed. And if you lived in 1000 AD and you read this or heard this or studied this, this would be an applicable book to you. And if the Lord tarries in a thousand years from now, whatever church happens to be around, this letter will be applicable to them. And so it is written to all churches and it is written to the church on Randall Place and we do well to heed what it has to say. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And from here now, grace and peace to you. And I think this is just one of the most beautiful um, salutations that you can, that is in Scripture. Grace and peace to you, literally, as we will see, it will be from the triune God. We will see that grace and peace come from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. Because that is really where grace and peace come from. If you want grace, you will not find grace anywhere except in the triune God. And if you need peace, Jesus said, I am the Prince of Peace. And if you need peace in your life, you will find peace nowhere except in the triune God who reigns from heaven. So grace and peace to you. And it begins with the Father. Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Maybe a little bit more accurate and in your margin it probably says who is coming it's a participle so I like that idea him who is coming the one who is I'm sorry the one who was the one who is and the one who is coming I think there are reflections of Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 here where Moses stood before the burning bush and says if I go to Egypt who will I say sent me and the Lord answers from the bush, tell him, I am sent you. I am the one who has basically this idea is I have no beginning and no end. I am the eternal one. And so it begins as the sovereign Lord of all history, the one who is present at all times, who is able to bring about his prophetic word to its glorious fulfillment and deliver his own. This is the one who is greeting you. The one who has no beginning, who has no end, who sets the course of history and brings it to its fulfillment and who protects his people and judges the wicked, that's the one. He never, there was never a time when he was not. He has not disappeared from the universe and he will come. And he will be present. This is the one greeting you. We need to know who our God is. Blessed is the one who reads and hears and obeys the words of this book, blessed is the one who knows who their Heavenly Father is. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now there have been a number of different thoughts as to what are these seven spirits that are before the throne. And um, a variety of ideas have gone forth, probably uh, uh, 
one idea that has been put forth by Jewish rabbis, um, and I think we see this. I may get my book wrong, so I won't even mention it. I think it's in First Enoch. It's mentioned. I may have my, my book wrong. Um, that talks about seven spirits. Um, that these are archangels that are before the throne. I don't think it's archangels. There have been other ideas put forth. It has to be the Holy Spirit. It just has to be. And I'll tell you why. First of all, when you give a greeting, grace and peace to you from God and from, and then from Jesus Christ. How could it be any? How could you say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and a bunch of archangels and from Jesus Christ? That just doesn't fit, does it? It has to be the Holy Spirit. So, the traditional way of, of understanding this seven spirits that are before his throne is traditionally understood as representative of the sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit that is found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Let me read that for you. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. But remember, seven is significant to John. Seven is meaningful to John. What does seven have to do with the book of Revelation? And really, I think generally throughout the whole Bible, seven, seven has to do with that which is complete and that which is full. This is talking about the fullness, the, the fullness of the Spirit. It is the completeness of the Spirit of God, the source of true power for the churches, and we will be seeing that as we go along in the book of Revelation. Grace and peace to you from Him who was and who is and who is coming and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ. So here we see the Trinity seated upon the throne, ruling and giving grace to the churches. And from Jesus Christ. Now Jesus, from here now we are given a variety of descriptions of Jesus Christ that I pray will be a blessing to you. I think it was a blessing to the readers who heard this, and I pray that it blesses you. It blessed me, but I hope it's as great a blessing to this church as it was to the seven who received it. First of all, Jesus is described as a faithful witness. This is a really, really, uh, this, is a, this is a continual theme in the book of Revelation. This idea of being a faithful witness. It's really kind of a sub-theme. And it's important in this. Jesus is the faithful witness. Why is Jesus the faithful witness? He's the faithful witness because he persevered in the, in the face of persecution, even to death. Jesus came and when the people loved him and lauded honor, threw palm branches down in front of them and said, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He was not distracted from doing the will of his Father. He did not say, oh look how popular I am. Boy, this is great. They just love me. Because a week later they were yelling, crucify him. And they did. And when they hated him and mocked him and scorned him and spat on him and despised him and called him a devil, he continued to be a faithful witness. 
going about doing what his father commanded him to do. And so to be a faithful witness is a is a characteristic of Jesus Christ. But let's not let's not mistake that throughout the book of Revelation, the people of God, Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ are also called to be faithful witnesses. We are to do the same thing that Jesus did. We are to be in union with Him as He was a faithful witness, so we are to be a faithful witness. And we see some of these and we see some of these uh, passages. Antipas was a faithful witness, even though he died. He was killed because he was a faithful witness, just like Jesus. And we see other faithful witnesses. We see the two witnesses in eleven three three killed for their testimony. We see the faithful witnesses in Genesis or in Revelation chapter seventeen six. They were slain. Basically, their blood was the the, the harlot was drunk on the blood of the faithful witnesses. We'll get into that whole scene quite some time from now. But basically, they were slain for their faith, and this harlot took was reveled. In their death. These are the faithful. We see faithful witnesses throughout the book of Revelation. Sorry they all die. All of them suffer for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is the faithful witness. And his people are to follow him. But remember, the book of Revelation showing us how things really are. See, in this life, that doesn't look so good. But when we read the book of Revelation, we're going to see things as they really are. And we're going to see that being a faithful witness is much greater blessing than the opposite. Because the opposite is to follow the beast. And when you follow the beast, you will eternally die. So, joyful fellowship with God, even when it led to the cross, was a greater blessing than all the accolades and the riches of the world. So do we desire our 15 minutes of fame, or 30 minutes of fame, or whatever it happens to be, maybe a lifetime of fame, and honor, and wealth, and glory, and power, and will that distract you from being a faithful witness? Or are you afraid that you will be mocked by your boss or by your co-workers? Do you fear that you may be fired from your job because of being a faithful witness? I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm talking about being a faithful witness. And does that concern you? I think it probably does. But Jesus, who we are united with, is the faithful witness. And he is saying blessings to the one who is a faithful witness. And then it goes on and it tells us not only is he a faithful witness, but he is the firstborn of the dead. I'm glad it says this. Because this tells us that being a faithful witness, even if it leads to your own death, is not the end of things. Because remember, Revelation is telling us how things really are. The world says, aha, we got you. It's over. We've silenced the, the believers. We've pushed them into the closets that have now been emptied by all of the perverse thoughts of this world that have now emptied out of the closets and the Christians have been pushed in and now we have got them. They've been silenced. But 
Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. I'm glad that this is firstborn. That's an ordinal number. And an ordinal number basically shows things in a set. So if Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, the set is, the de- is those who will be born, who die and are born. There are more to follow, in other words. I guess I don't want to make this too complicated. If he's the firstborn because of the way it's raised here, there has to be others. And those like Antipas, those whose blood caused the harlot to become drunk, they also will be raised with Jesus, united with Jesus in his death, raised with Jesus in life, and they will reign forever and ever and live with Christ forever. He's the firstborn from the dead. The death of Jesus was not the end. And the death of his saints is not the end. I hope you're blessed. I want to encourage that through that though faithfulness may cost, it may cost, I don't know what it may cost. And remember, faithfulness it doesn't, it doesn't just happen when we are in a negative situation. Faithfulness also happens when we are experiencing the accolades and the quote, blessings of this world, when we get a raise and when we have more time and we have all of these things. Are we continuing on in faithfulness to God or are we being distracted from all of this stuff? Will we be like those who we saw in the letter to Diognetius, who live in a way that knowing God is greater than all the accolades that culture can offer you? Is knowing God better than avoiding, avoiding tribulation? Jesus has led the way. As churches, we are tempted to compromise. We're so busy trying to be relevant. We end up looking like the world, and I fear that. And then finally, Jesus is described as the ruler of the kings of earth. What a great statement. However powerful the earth kings are, Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. No matter how powerful the earth kings are, they will all answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who understands these things. So that's kind of a good theological understanding of who Jesus is. As I teach my theology class, this is what I teach them. I teach them the importance of theology. But I teach them that theology needs to produce doxology, which is praise. As we experience the theological truths the Bible gives us, if it does nothing to us, if all it is is head knowledge, then we've really accomplished nothing. It should lead to doxology, that is praise. This is exactly, this is one of the verses that I would use to support that, because John just goes on and gives a theological um, presentation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then he begins this this doxology. And doxology is just a short hymn of praise. What do we say? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What do we call that? We call that the doxology. It's just a short hymn of praise. And here it is. To Him who loves us. I'm glad it starts with that. 
To Him who loves us. This is now a statement of praise. To Him who loves us. The world may hate you, you seven churches, you people who are living under this tyrant of a man called Domitian. Rome may hate you. They may despise you. They may think of you as scum of the earth. But Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings, He loves you. Let me prove that to you. To the one, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. The world may hate you, but Jesus loves you. And Jesus just doesn't give lip service. Oh, I love you. He actually demonstrates his love for you. And that he frees us from our sins by his blood. We are free from sin. I want you to understand we're not just forgiven for sin. That's really important to be forgiven of sin. That here we're free from sin, that we are no longer slaves to sin. The Bible tells us that the soul soul that sins will die and that the wages of sin is death. And so this is more than forgiveness. This is freedom from enslavement. You no longer have to live enslaved to sin. I no longer have to live enslaved to sin. I'm not saying I don't sin or that you don't sin. I'm saying we don't have to be enslaved to it. It does not need to master us. Because the one who loved us gave, freed us by his blood. And look at this next phrase. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, and made us to, to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. It's made us to be priests. Oh, I don't really want to be a priest. Let me tell you, what did a priest do? Priest was a mediator between man and God. That's what a priest did. He stood between men and God. He brought men to God. He stood in a gap so that men could come to God. That's what a priest did. He might have prayed for their sins. He might have offered a sacrifice for their sins. He might have heard their their desire to, to come to God and he would be kind of that bridge. See, this is what Christians do. The ones who have been released from their sins, now we don't just sit around, we do sing praise. We should sing praise. But this is what Christians do. We mediate the love of God to the world. We are priests to the world. We proclaim the good news. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the appropriate response. If you have been freed from your sins, you are a mediator to the world. You are a priest to God. The appropriate response is to say, praise be the name of the Lord. Folks, are we living as though we belong to Jesus? Are we living as though we are freed from sin? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we rejoicing in praise? Do we look more like a kingdom citizen or do we look more like an American citizen? We're so busy trying to conform ourselves to be accepted by the world that we're no longer looking like a kingdom citizen. I want you to know, I'll go back to this, 
They are evil spoken of, but they are justified. They repay insult with honor. They do good, but they're punished as evildoers. And then when they're punished, they rejoice. Those who hate them are unable to find any reason for their hatred. I hate to say it, the people who hate the church can find good reason to hate the church. I don't want to be that. I want to be these. They find no reason. They may hate us, but they have no reason for it. They can't even find one. When they're dishonored, they are glorified. Are we adopting the culture of heaven or are we adopting the culture of our society? Blessed be the ones who read this book and hear this book and obey what God says in it. And we need to begin with an understanding of who our great God and Savior is. During the Civil Rights Movement, one of the things that really turned the tide of the Civil Rights Movement was television. Because one of the primary themes, one of the primary motivators of it was peaceful resistance. It was not to fight back. That idea came under a lot of attack. A lot. But the main voice that said, no, don't fight back. And then the TV camera showed innocent, innocent people, peaceful protesters being brutalized. And people watching on the TV said, I don't know what that, all this civil rights thing is about, but that's wrong. You don't treat people that way. And we, as believers, also, we may resist our culture, but one of the greatest ways that the gospel went forth in the early church, and one of the greatest things that brought people to Christ was they saw them were realized. They saw Christians being torn apart by wild beasts. And they saw Christians' homes being taken. And people looked and said, that's not right. I don't know what this whole Christian thing is. They worship some guy named Jesus. They say he died and rose again. I don't get it, but here's what I know. That's not right. And those people rejoice when that happens. Those people have confidence that whatever happens to them is worth everything for this Jesus Christ. That brought revival. That brought people to the Lord. Not because they looked like the world, but because they stood firm for Christ. It wasn't that they were opposed to the world, they just stood for Christ. And then John gives us this glorious promise. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. John here combines two passages of Scripture from Daniel chapter 7, 13, and from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And in Daniel, every, it says he is coming in the clouds. Here we see that the, that the Messiah, basically the anointed one, is coming in the clouds as the righteous judge who has dominion and glory and power forever and ever, and he judges the earth kings. Jesus used this verse on... To, to the Pharisees, they said, Are you the Messiah? And he says, You will see me coming in the clouds. He said, I'm coming as your judge. 
But he also combines this with Zechariah 12.10, which speaks of the Messiah who is pierced for the transgressions of his people. And so John perfectly combines to show us who our Savior is. He is the coming judge, and he was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. And every eye will see him. Folks, I want you to know who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who died for your sins, and he is the coming judge. Make no mistake, John is perfectly clear about that. And do you recognize Jesus is both the one who is pierced for your transgressions and the one who judges the nations? A lot of times we like the idea that Jesus is the one who is pierced for my transgressions and my sins are forgiven. But do you recognize that Jesus is the one who judges the earth? He will judge the living and the dead. This is the one whom we find blessing. And finally, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. This is basically my stamp of approval. Everything that just got said, God says, that's the way it is. I'm the one who says this. And I'm the eternal one. Nothing has been overlooked. Nothing has been neglected. God rules history. Folks, I'll conclude with this. Domitian was a terror, and as I've said, a moral catastrophe of a man. And people who lived in the days of Domitian, if you desired just to live and compromise, you were fine. But if you decided to say that Jesus is Lord, you are going to have trouble. Let me read another passage from the letter to Dionysius. Do you not see them exposed to wild beasts? Speaking of Christians, do you not see them exposed to wild beasts that they may be persuaded to deny the Lord and yet not overcome? Do you not see that the more of them are punished, the greater becomes the number of the rest? This does not seem to be the work of man. This is the power of God and the evidence of his presence. Do you not see them exposed to wild beasts in order to persuade them, and they don't, and they're not overcome by that? Do you see that the more they're punished, they grow in number? Mathetus ends up saying, this isn't the work of man. This is the power of God. And the evidence of God's presence is that they stand believing God is more glorious and more valuable than anything this world can offer and more glorious and more powerful than anything this world can do to them. These are the blessed ones. And so my question, are you blessed? Do you want to be blessed? This book offers a blessing because it tells us about the Lord whom we can serve and whom we can honor and that we can love and that we and that through whom we will overcome this world. Let's stand and let's pray. As we do, I need to ask, are you blessed to the Lord? I guess the first question is, are you the Lord's? That's the first question. Are you the Lord's? Because if not, Remember, he did die for your sins, but he is coming as judge. Both those things, there's the positive, there's the good side and the bad side. 